right, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 13 today, looking at verses 1 through 17. Um, down the center column of seats, there are some Bibles there. So if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to grab one of these, the Pew Bible. And John 13 is on page 585. For those of you that are here for the first time, we've been inching our way through the Gospel of John for several months now. We have happened upon chapter 13. The interesting thing about John is uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Synoptic Gospels basically gives us a, uh, a continuous view of Jesus' life, almost from his, his birth to his, his passion, his death. John doesn't necessarily do that. John just jumps in, um, um, really showing us different encounters with, uh, of, of Jesus with people that he meets along the way and how their lives are changed and, or basically how they respond to, to them. And so the, the central point of, of John is that uh, is he's trying to get people to believe in Jesus. Uh, chapter 20, verse 31 gives us really the overarching framework for John. He says, I've written these things so that you might believe and that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that having believed, you might have life in his name. That's what John is trying to do for us through all of these chapters as he unfolds uh, the life of Jesus. That really is what a gospel is. It's a theological or um, a spiritual biography of the life of Jesus. When we get to chapter 13, um, things slow down. Really, chapter 1 through all the way through chapter 12 are three years of, of Jesus' life. It's his ministry years. When we get to chapter 13, all the way through chapter 17, we are reading about really a few hours of his life. All this happens in one, one single day. And so we'll take a little bit of time over the next few weeks looking at this beautiful picture of what it means for Jesus to ultimately give his life for us by dying on the cross, to see his person and it's working. Of course, this morning we're looking at uh, verses 1 through 13. This is a famous story. Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Grab your Bibles. We're going to read together out loud. Verse 1 through 17. Read with me. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew what his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, 
He said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. So I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are assembled here as your church, gathered uh, as you've commanded us to um, to fellowship, to participate in the, the reading and the hearing of your word, and Lord, to, to sit under scripture that it might instruct us. And you say in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 that your word not only instructs us, it it reproves us, it corrects us, it, it trains us in righteousness. And would you do that with us, for us, in us this morning? God, we pray that you would open our ears, that they might hear what you would say to us by your spirit, and that, that you might change us in the, in the hearing of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, this is a classic story. And this is the thing with classic stories. It's easy to roll past them. I mean, you can just, all right, it's familiar. I know what's going to happen. Jesus just, you know, he takes the, t- takes the clothes off, puts a towel on, washes the disciples' feet. And um, what I would encourage us, actually even caution us, let's not do that today. Um, it's, it's easy uh, for us to, to, to buy into the, all the moral principles and truths that, that really are embedded in this particular passage of Scripture um, and so re- really what I want to do is I want to do that. I want to I want to say the obvious. Jesus actually is serving his disciples while washing their feet. But I also want to pull out a few truths um, that 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 are easy to miss because the spotlight here is Jesus. It's not what Jesus does. The spotlight actually is Jesus himself. He's the focal point of this passage. And so these aren't really points, but as we're going through the text, what I want you to think about, what I want to call your attention to are really three things that's going on. Jesus kneeling before his disciples, Jesus washing his disciples' feet, and then Jesus commanding and teaching us what this story is, is really about. So these aren't points again, but this is what you should be paying attention to as we're pressing our way through this particular passage. I think the key to, to all that we'll read is, is what we see in, in verse 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, listen to these words, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Emphasis on those, those last few words. He loved them to the end. And so essentially what Jesus is doing as he approaches the, the latter days of his life, and he's only got a few left, is, is he's, he's unpacking who he is, but also he's going to demonstra- demonstrably show these, these closest friends that he has, these disciples, who he is and, and what he's come to do. Um, in Mark's gospel, he says it a little differently. This is what he says in Mark's gospel. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so that really is what this story is all about. This essentially is not a story about Jesus 
uh, humbling himself and about servanthood, although those that's a part of the story. We can find those truths here, but ultimately Jesus is, is really pointing to himself that he's fully God, fully man. He's come to fully serve us. And he lives out his identity as a servant of God, but he not only serves us, he makes it possible for us to, in his stead, because he served us perfectly, go and serve both God and others as well, just as he has done. Now, there's some interesting stuff. There's always drama when, you know, uh, the New Testament surrounding the stories of Jesus gives us a little bit of drama. And so we have some drama in this passage as well. And it has to do with with the disciples. Actually, this is a, a pathetic argument that's going on. We don't get the gist of it here in John, but Luke in his uh, rendition of of this uh, of the gospel um, sort of lets us know going on behind the scenes what's going on with the disciples as they're jockeying to see who's going to be the greatest. Luke 22 verses 24 to 26. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles, this is Jesus speaking, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Um, hopefully you get the point. All right. So we can look at the disciples a lot of times and think that they're like goofballs, right? Like sometimes they just don't get it. They they say the wrong things. They do the wrong things. They misinterpret uh, Jesus and what he's doing, even though he tells them kind of sort of plainly uh, who he is and what he's doing. And here um, something is going on behind the scenes and they're trying to get out of something. And they're entering this discussion about greatness. Who's the greatest so that uh, they can put themselves in uh, in a pecking order. And so the, the, it's easy to look at the disciples and think they're goofballs. But when we do that, we, all, we, we obviously put ourselves on a pedestal and we say, you know what? If I were back then in the first century and I'm with Jesus, I, I absolutely wouldn't do that. I would get it right. Um, but what this brings out is is the fact that we have to identify with the disciples because uh, we live in a culture where greatness is is determined just like it was in the first century. It's it's your status. It's your title. It's how much stuff you have. It's your position in the society. And that really was the gist of of their their little stupid argument. Most of us are taught in our culture to aim for status and title. It's hard to escape um, those kinds of goals and objectives in our life because that's the world that we live in. We're constantly trying to work our way up. Image, career, and the things that we amass in this life. And so what Jesus is teaching here is exactly the opposite. He's saying, he's not saying this, but he's implying this by what he's getting ready to do. Uh, I, I'm inviting you to into an environment where the king and his kingdom is an upside down kingdom. It's where the leader among you must be a servant. It's where the first is last. It's where the greatest of you is actually the least. And so the disciples, disciples are, are jockeying for a little bit of position. This is what's going on. Uh, John lets us know it's the feast, the feast of the Passover. This is the most important feast that the Jews would have come back to Jerusalem for. And 
Um, feasts were important in the, the Jewish culture. In, this, uh, in, in the large feasts, uh, the, the, the families, the Jews would, would gather and they would particularly go to someone's home. And because this is an environment, uh, agrarian environment, but it's, you know, they don't have the hygiene standards we have. No flush and toilets. There's not a, there's not a sanitation department that comes and takes your, your garbage and moves, you know, takes it from your curb and moves it out to wherever they take that stuff to. Uh, the roads aren't paved. They're dusty. And as you're walking, which is what their mode of transportation, they're getting dirty. They're getting nasty. And especially, particularly their feet, are dirty. And so uh, during these feasts, one of the focal points would be the dinners that they would have, the, the meals that they would have. And so uh, they're getting ready to celebrate the Passover. Um, they find this spot. And um, uh, one of the practices was if you were a, a, a Jewish home hosting others coming to a, a dinner feast kind of thing, you would have a non-Jewish servant wash the feet of your guests. Okay, not a Jewish servant, a non-Jewish servant. And so um, think about what's going on here. Last week in chapter 12, we had read that Jesus hid from the crowd. It was his last public event. And so he really has um, dismissed himself from any public setting. There are religious people, Pharisees, the chief priests and those that are set to kill Jesus. And and so he. Uh, he really has removed himself there. They're meeting in secret. They're getting ready to celebrate the feast in secret. And very likely there's no non-Jewish servant or slave around to simply wash the disciples feet. And so can you get it? They're jockeying for position. Who's the greatest? I ain't washing y'all feet. That's what's going on. The disciples, they don't want to wash each other's feet. And so Jesus is seeing what's going on. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. Jesus is laying there. And so he gets up and he does the unthinkable. Verse three. Jesus, knowing. I'm sorry, where is it? Verse three. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And so Jesus takes on the role and the responsibility of this uh, this non-Jewish slave uh, that was absent from their their Passover meal setting. He prepares to wash their dirty, mucky, nasty feet. Okay, when we uh, looked at John 11 and and Mary uh, breaking over the the alabaster jar of, of, of nard and pouring all that out and taking her hair and washing Jesus' feet. We talked about the, um, how the, the stigma of feet in the Jewish culture. Really, there's no place in the world where feet don't have the, the, the stigma of being nasty, stinky, dirty. Okay, um, and, and here in the Western world, we, got the, we have the, the sense to put our feet in like shoes and stuff so they get sweaty and we put socks on them, you know, all those kinds of things. Feet are dirty. Feet are nasty. Feet stink. Okay. Particularly in this environment because of the the dirty roads and the the different hygiene standards. And so essentially Jesus is saying, all right, so enough with words. I've I've, I've talked to the crowds. I've actually uh, spent my one-on-one time with all you disciples trying to get, trying to convey to you who I am and the kingdom that I'm inviting you into, and you don't get it. I've, I've said in so many ways um, that 
the kingdom that you're being invited into is an upside down kingdom. You, you, you can't be great. You can't be um, number one to be considered great. It's really the opposite of that. And Jesus demonstrates what this greatness looks like right in front of them. He takes on the posture of a servant. So he takes off his garment. He wraps a towel around his waist. He probably kneels on the ground. He gets a water basin. He fills it up with water. And then one by one, he goes down the line, probably two sides of a table, and he washes his disciples' feet. Um, I probably can't, I mean, it would be neat if we could see a movie of how that portrayed. Um, I, I'm not going to be able to give it the justice that it needs in terms of how, what the disciples might have been feeling, but also what Jesus, you know, what he was actually doing. The closest example I could possibly give you is this, hey, you, you had a dinner, you, a dinner party. You got several people over, but you invited your boss. And so your boss is enjoying dinner. Then he has to ex- excuse himself to go to the bathroom. And, you know, one minute goes by, two minutes goes by, five minutes goes by. It's like, whoa, what's going on? Meanwhile, in the bathroom, your boss is the, the, clo- the toilet got clogged. And so he finds your plunger. and He's like plunging, trying to get his waist to go down. And then after he finish, finishes cleaning, you know, getting the waist to go down, he actually opens up the cabinet underneath your bathroom sink, pulls out all of your cleaning supplies and starts to wipe all around your toilet and to wipe up all the floor. That, I mean, that's a, like a nasty example, isn't it? But that's that's kind of what was going on. That's that's a semblance of what was going on. It's the unthinkable. I mean, you would have been wouldn't you be mortified if like somebody that you really respect came over your house and the bat that the toilet got clogged. It's this kind of thing going on with Jesus and his disciples. Um, I point your attention to verse three. I would argue that this this verse is the key to this little section here. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, listen to that, that he had come from God and was going back to God. What was Jesus' motivation to do this, to actually serve his disciples in this this unthinkable way? And I think verse 3 points it out. Jesus knew who he was, he knew where he came from, and he knew where he was going. He was from God. He knew he was sent by God to atone for the sins of the world, to serve humanity in a way that was unthinkable, given the sinful nature of us and our rebellion against God. And he knew that eventually, as he completed the will of the Father, he was going back to God the Father. That, that was his motivation for doing all that he did. And so what we see in Jesus here is he drew near to these disciples and he watched he washed their feet. I don't know about you, but, you know, there's there's lots of lots of we have lots of motivations to do what we do in, in life. But um, most of the motivations that we for which we do the things that we do don't have anything to do with God. Most of our motivations are are self. Uh, they're, they're selfish. They have to do with what we can get out of it. Um, to say that they're godless would be um, too harsh. But what I'm saying is most of our motivations are, are superficial. If I can get something out of it, I'm going to do it. Um, and when you're doing something just for your own 
motivation or you're doing it for a, uh, a wrong motivation, then it's not going to last. You might do it one time out of, out of pity or sympathy, but you're not going to do it uh, over a long time. There's two, uh, two, really two ways that we are motivated um, to, to do things, to serve that really aren't motivated in, in, uh, by a God-oriented way. The first is we're motivated by guilt. You guys ever been motivated by guilt to do anything? Um, so we are, we are a consumer-oriented um, society. Uh, we buy things that we don't even need. And there's something in the back of our minds that will remind us at, at, at a certain point that, you know what? Enough's enough. I got too much stuff. I got too many Prada, Michael Kors. I don't even know the other names that come up. The, you know, all those purses y'all women take. So you, say you got like 20 purses. It's like, man, I got a lot of purses. And I like the, I can wear one every day. But you know what? You got this number pain in the back. He's like, I got too many. I mean, what are, they, what, what are the people going to think if I'm bringing a new one every day to work? And so um, to make yourself feel good, you pick out the worst two, the, one, the, the two that you, you've only had for like two weeks. And no, no, no. You pick out the two that you've had for like five months and you give those away. You, you'll take them to the goodwill and you'll donate them. And it might make you feel better. Don't act like y'all don't do that. Um, the church can often motivate you with guilt. And I would, you know, I would say I've never done this, but I have. I have. This is what I say. All right, check it out. So um, you want to feel awesome, then you can come to our outreach today. We're going to serve the homeless. And most of y'all will do it. But you, oftentimes we do it um, not because it's in us to do it, a, a God-oriented reason. We'll do it because the pastor said do it, or we're doing it because, you know what, this is thing in the back of my head, I, I should probably do it. I'm a Christian, I should probably do this. Um, sometimes you're guilty to give. Um, you know what, you want to deny yourself a little bit. How about breaking your checkbook out? Here's a worthy cause. Give, write this check out, transit church, you know. Um, that money's going to go to a good reason. Um, and... Definitely, this is an important one, but we guilt you into this. Uh, you want to feel, feel, feel really good about yourself? Go serve in a nursery. They're, they're, seriously, go serve in a nursery. Those kids back there need you. And if you have, if you started your life off, your day off with a bad day, all you got to do is just hang out in a nursery for five minutes, and those kids are going to bring a smile to your face. So uh, the next time you hear me say any of those, I'm not trying to motivate you by guilt. I'm actually speaking truth. God has given it to me to say it to you. Um, and so we, we motivate by guilt, but we also, uh, sometimes our service is motivated uh, by force. When I, was, uh, when I served in North Carolina, the church there, Man and Church in Fable, it's a large church, and oftentimes the city, the government would come to us, and they'd have these juvenile delinquents, and they would ask us to, um, to allow these uh, men and women to serve in our church, and we would give them menial tasks to do, mostly cleaning up, fixing chairs, taking out the trash, those kinds of things. They love coming to serve at the church because we, we didn't have anything that was going to, you know, degrade them or be really hard, other than, you know, sometimes they take them and, and make them work for the sanitation department. But they called it community service. Um, my kids go to this school, so both my boys go to Hayfield Secondary School, and it's interesting that they have... <coughs> Uh, classes in this school that require them for grade to 
do community service hours. There are some colleges that you young people in here will apply to that if you have not, I mean, a requirement to get in the school is performing community service hours. Now, those are examples of, of, of motivation by force. If you don't do this, you don't get a good grade. If you don't do this, you can't even come into my school. Here's the thing about, about, about all of these. Um, they're superficial. We do them to get what we want. Uh, but after we've gotten what we want, we really dismiss the, the, the purpose behind the serving. All that to say, that's, this is not what, what's going on with Jesus' life. He, he is not being motivated by guilt. He's definitely not being motivated by force. He knows who he is, that he's Lord over all. But he also understands that the disciples aren't receiving the thing that God is, is like um, setting sirens off for them to get. And so he begins to wash their feet one by one. He goes down the line. Verse five. Then he tied around, tied it around his waist, a towel. I'm sorry. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around his waist. Did I say that right? Wrapped around him. Um, I can only imagine that the room fell silent. Can you? I mean, just this is, this is Jesus, the one who they had seen do great miracles, the one they had called Lord and Master and Rabbi, and they had never seen anyone like this in their culture do this before. Because this would be the 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 job of a non-Jewish slave. Likely, they felt a bit awkward as he moved from from Thomas to Bartholomew to Andrew to Peter to John, and then even Judas, even. Judas. He's washing Judas' feet. And then the text tells us Jesus kneels before Peter. And in typical fashion, Peter just can't shut up. Peter's going to say what Peter wants to say. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterward, you'll understand. Verse eight, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. All right. Here's the, 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 the original language, the Greek uh, for what Peter is saying in verse eight is is simply this. He's like, not ever will you wash my feet forever. Peter's like being emphatic. He's like looking at Jesus. I call you Lord and master, but. There's not not a day in a million years that you're going to wash my nasty, dirty, stinky feet. You're just not going to do it. All right, let's read the other half of, of verse 8. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Of course, Peter, his whole perspective is, is changed now. He's like, all right, if I if I if I gotta let you wash me to, to be with you, let's go ahead and get the sponge bath out. Just you know, just douse me with water and wipe it all over me. Um Peter can't help but say what he's feeling, and I and I really appreciate um all that Peter uh the Bible gives us of glimpses of Peter. Let's finish this section out in verse 10. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. 
That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And so Jesus has really given us two principles here in this last section. The first is our standing with Christ um, because he's atoned for our sin uh, by his blood is secure. And so when he's washed us by his blood, um, we're clean. We're clean in a way that nothing can rip us from his hands. We'll live with him eternally. But he's giving us a second principle, and it's simply this. We live in a world where we brush up against sin all the time. Our feet, um, our feet are immersed in a culture of, of murk and mire and, and wrongdoing. And he said that requires you to daily come back in contact with Jesus and have him wash you, to wash you in the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, and verse 10 really only, verse 10 and 11 are really only echoing what we've heard in verse eight. Let's go back to verse eight. Here, here's listen to this sentence again. It says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So here's the context. Jesus knows who he is. His motivation is coming not because he's uh, being forced to uh, to do this servant act. He's not feeling guilty. He's secure in who God has made him, um, why he was sent, and the purpose why he's come to earth. He's not seeking any kind of identity. He knows that he's the, the most beloved son of God the Father. But here he's speaking to the disciples, and he's saying, unless I wash you, you absolutely have no part with me. And what I want to offer you is these are profound words. They're profound because Jesus, firstly, is serving as an exemplar. <laughs> He's setting an example for us as Christians in ways that we're supposed to treat those around us. But he's also showing us much more than that. He's saying this. He's saying unless Jesus washes us, unless he serves us, we can never serve for him or with him. So in order for us to serve for God, we must be served by God. That's an interesting concept. Jesus serves us so that we can go out and serve him, but not only him, for him. Again, think back to, to verse one and, the, and really the, the whole motivation for why Jesus is doing this. He said, having loved them to the end. And I think this sets the stage for what comes from, ver- from chapter 13 all the way through Jesus dying on the cross. In fact, we wouldn't we won't hear this sentiment. Jesus loving his disciples until the end, the end of his life, until the uh, the end of forever really is what that's talking about. This is never-ending love that Jesus has for us that he would raise his hands and um, allow himself to be nailed to a cross. And and that really is what what he shows us. To the end means he, in, like in chapter 19. He raises his hands on the cross and he says, it's finished. I, I've done that thing for which God sent me to do for the people that he's calling me to. And I would offer you, this is the full extent of Jesus' love for you. This is how much Jesus loves you. He loves you to the end. What Jesus is essentially telling his disciples is that I've not come just to model the truth of servanthood. My mission is to live in your place. We sang this song. He's a good father. I'm loved by him. He's perfect in all of it. You're perfect in all of your ways. 
One of the ways that Jesus shows his perfection for us is he perfectly serves for us. For, you know, think about all the ways that you fall short of, of even just the words that you read in the Bible. The, the simple things that we're supposed to do that either in our selfishness we, selfishness we don't want to do or those things that um, just because of sin that you, you, you trip over it every time you try to do it. Jesus comes and does that for us, and he does it perfectly. And when he's doing it perfectly, he's doing it for you. He's serving perfectly for you, for all of your selfishness, for all the ways you fail to love God, for all the ways that you fail to love those around you, for the rebellion that you uh, exude toward God when he's doing nothing but showing you love. And he does it so we can be a part of him. He's does, he does it so that we can be in relationship with him. Titus 3.5 says it like this. This is Paul speaking to his uh, mentee, Titus. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, I mean, what do you think of God? What do you think about when you think of, of God? What comes to your mind? You know, for some of us, God is, is distant. He's like 2,000 miles away. And when he speaks to me, he's yelling through this bullhorn and I can hardly hear him. There's some of us that God is very near, but because of what we've experienced in this life or because of the people that you've um, learned about God through, God is really he's close to you, but he's angry and he's mad and he sees everything that you do wrong. And and he's going to let you know when you do it. He lets you know. Um, such that you are uh, very aware of your of your sin, that you're reminded every day of your shame, you're reminded of those ways that you um, overtly do what God says not to do, you're reminded of those things that um, that the sin that's been done against you, and you hear those things, and it leads to condemnation and guilt, and that is the beauty of John 13. Think about what Jesus does here. His, the, the disciples are no different than us. They have the same struggles. They have the same sin patterns. They have the same shame. And in the midst of all that, Jesus, God sent from heaven to dwell amongst men and eventually atone for their sin. In the midst of just them being who they are, he kneels down. He takes off his clothes. He gets a basin filled with water and he takes their their sin and their shame symbolized by their dirty, nasty, murky feet, and he washes them. And that's what Jesus does over you and your life. He comes, he draws near, he washes our feet. He doesn't do it from a distance. He does it up close and personal. Jesus says, if you don't let me serve you, if you don't humble yourself enough to recognize that that's why my son was on the cross, he's taken all of your sin and shame, He's taking your suffering. He's taking your guilt so that you can also draw near. But not only draw near so that you can live for God, that you can be in relationship to God, that you can be on mission with God, advancing his kingdom. Jesus serves you so that you can serve God, but also serve for him. Jesus follows up this act of service in verse 12 through 17 with uh, a lesson. Verse 12. 
When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so Jesus gives a a very simple lesson. He's saying, check it out. I'm Lord. There's no one greater than me. If I want if I want it to rain, all I have to say is, is rain. Have you seen the miracles that I've done? If I want to heal someone, someone that has some ailment, I'll speak a word or I'll touch them and they'll be healed. God sent me here to do that among you. But then he gives them this lesson. If I'm Lord and I'm not using my power and authority to abuse or promote my own name, how much more should you follow my example? And here's, the, here's, I think, the lessons for us, a word for us, really. We live in a culture of self-promotion. We live in a culture of pursue your own glory, live for yourself. And the reality is we can't live in a culture like that and not have that kind of pervasive culture come on us. It, it, we brush up against it every day. It's, it's a culture where... Our, our desires, our needs, our wants are shaped by the same pervasive thought. Do those things that are selfishly motivated. Pursue your own glory. Do what you want to do. And, and in fact, I would say this. Our natural inclination is not to kneel in service before anybody. We don't walk into a room, even a room like this, and the, the first thought in our, in our minds is, who's the lowest person in here, the person struggling, someone with something going on in their heart that I might be able to, to serve that need? We don't just walk into, we don't, we don't live like that. And I'm not trying to beat you down by saying that. It's just, it's not, the kind, it's, it's not in our culture and it's not in us. But this is what God is telling us. He's saying, I created you to serve and live, not for yourself, but for my own glory. And verse 17 is, a, is, a, is, a, uh, is the, the vein that he would have, this in, have us do this in. He says, if you know these things, if you know what things, if you know who I am, why I've come, and what I come to do, not only that, but if you know that I, I'm Lord and have all authority and power, and I'm not taking that, and I'm not abusing that, but I'm coming as a servant because God has sent me to do that for you, He says, if you know that, blessed are you if you do them. And so there's a there's a blessing. In other words, there's joy that we get from Jesus when we simply submit to his word. There's joy in this. You know, a lot of times we think of 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 serving other people, even sometimes serving the purposes of God is like I'm going to get whipped like I'm going to get beat up because I'm going to. I'm going to lure myself to, to, to serve. But Jesus is here saying that there's something in serving that brings us to joy. I think, it, I think it's why he says of Jesus in Hebrews uh, 12 too, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Jesus invites us to the, the joy of living out our design as the children of God. 
I want to finish this up by uh, having you consider three questions. Just three questions and it will be done. The first is, do you know your story? Do you know your place in God's story? Do you know your place in God's story? God's story is this. He made a world. He made it perfect. Everything was in harmony with, with each other. And it was all such that, that we would bring glory to God. And then all of that fell apart when man disobeyed God. They did what he said not to do. And sin ensued. Sin came into them. Sin came into all the world. But in God's plan of redemption, of, of righting all the wrongs from his original creation, God has always pursued us. And so really uh, all these all these chapters here in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament of the Bible, it's a record of God pursuing his people, trying to bring them back to a place where he would be their God. They would be his people and he would create a place for them to dwell together. And it never happened. God's people continually rebel against him. And so he sends his son. He sends Jesus. And Jesus really comes as as a servant. He comes to serve fully. And we could say, in a sense, that all the purposes of God are fulfilled in Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He serves perfectly in every way. He dies on the cross. He raises from the grave. He goes to heaven and he intercedes for us. Here's some scripture verses that tells us what Jesus, uh, how Jesus has called us to live. Ephesians 2.10, we've been created to do good works. 1 Peter 4.10, God has gifted us to serve. Romans 6.18, we're slaves to righteousness. We're slaves of God. So when Jesus comes to earth and he serves perfectly for us because we can't do that, he's made a way for us really to do these kinds of things. And this idea of being slaves of God really is pervasive through the the New Testament. We are not just just submitted to God. We we are workers of of, of him to do what he would have us to do. According to the story of of the Bible, we're servants and our service is all about Jesus. It's supposed to reflect who he is, the glory of God, the Father. And what does he want? He wants us to offer our lives in service to Jesus. The second question, what's your posture towards serving? What's your posture towards serving? Really, there's three ways you can you can adopt. Either you know who, um, what God calls you to and you're serving fully, willingly in that. Um, but most of us fall a little bit shy of that, me included. Um, and so there are, are a few of us who uh, our perspective is I, I'm just serving me. I'm just serving myself. And I, what I would encourage you is actually. Uh, this is a correction. That's very short sighted. And at some point, um, you just get tired of it. You figure out that serving yourself is a miserable existence of a life. I could say more about that, but I'm going to keep going. Here's the thing. Service is an opportunity for us to unself ourself. It's to think of something other than yourself. That's what serving is. Unselfing you for us to be unpreoccupied with ourselves, with me, my needs, my wants. Instead, it's an invitation um, for us to bless to, to bless others by serving. There's another group of people, and those are people who who serve selectively. This is a person that would be cheery in one setting, like yeah, you come to church, 
and you got your smiley face on and how you doing? I'm doing great. Life is good. But then you go back home and I mean, it's like you punch in and out of the clock. You go back home and you don't love your neighbors. You don't love your home. You don't love anybody. Sometimes we do that. We put on the happy face when we come to church. Um, we serve if we're asked to. Uh, but when we get to around those who we should really be serving, we, we punch out. It's like, mm, I ain't got nothing for you. Third question. What next step can I take? What next step can I take? And this is the invitation. This is the invitation of, of this text to all of us. And this is, a, this, is, this is our responsibility towards Scripture. When we hear it, we, we're supposed to respond. And so let me offer you uh, a couple things. The Bible says it's more blessed to give than receive. Those are words of Jesus. There's more joy to be found in giving our lives. We were created for this kind of living. And that's a living with not, not clenched hands. I'm keeping all that I have to myself, but open them up. And so let me ask you to consider, consider three areas of your life, your home life. What would it look like for you to, if you're a husband, to actually serve your, your wife or for your wife to actually serve your husband and for you parents to serve, to serve your kids? You know, sometimes the, the hardest place for us to serve is at home because those are the people that know us most. They know, I mean, we know them, they know us, and it's like, eh. What would it look like for you to serve those people who are closest to you? What would it look like for you to serve your neighbors? So actually um, open your door, let your blinds up, let your garage door up, hang outside and just ask them, hey, what's going on? How can I help you? Have you ever done that? What would it look like for you to serve in your workplace? And I don't know what your relationship with your boss is, um, but here's the perspective that the Bible gives us about work, that really um, your boss isn't your, your boss. Colossians 3 says you should work as if you're working for the Lord. So whether your boss is a good boss or a bad boss, your viewpoint should be I'm, I'm serving Jesus. I'm serving the Lord as I work. So what would it look like for you to serve those, even those who are hard to serve in your workplace? If you're a boss here and we're top heavy church, y'all are some high ranking people. So what would it look like for you to serve those who are subordinate to you? What would that look like for you? And then Eric just consider at church, you know, back back in the back right now, kids ministry in the nursery. Motivation by guilt. Check it out. <laughs> Remember what I said earlier. Um, what are those people doing back there? They're not just babysitting. They're not just washing your kids. It's not child care. They are washing your feet. Ever thought about that? They're washing your feet by discipling your kids. Actually, I'm changing some nasty diapers, too. Um, we have a logistics team that gets here at 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock, they're washing your feet by setting all this stuff up and making an environment so that we can come and serve. And we've had a, a couple of people that have been doing this for like two and a half years of our, the life of our church. Our community group leaders, when they open their home, I know our family, like I, I, I get off work late and the kids like, our kids like to the four winds. And so like 30 minutes before community group, we're like vacuum cleaner, scrubbing stuff up, hiding stuff, send some snacks out. And then Lord help us to have the right, you know, give us joy as we serve. I'm just being honest with y'all jokers. I'm just being honest. Right. This is but this is this is washing the feet of the of the saints. And we're called to this. I'll finish with this life. Living a life of service is only possible because Christ has laid before us the pattern 
for our service. This is what he does. He kneels down. He takes off his outer garment. He kneels right in front of you. And he takes a basin of water and he washes your feet. For some of you, you really need that because your feet are dirty. For others, he's washed your feet before. And so as you come into contact with the world, he's just reminding you of your sin and give you an opportunity to to ask for forgiveness. But I would encourage you, if you've never had Jesus wash your feet, that, that means to if you've never submitted your heart to him, to trust him with your shame and your sin and all those things that are just really private to you, what an invitation he's given you. Let him wash your feet. Let's pray. Father, we are not worthy of the great grace that you offer us to think that the God of the universe would lower himself even to come into our world to walk our roads, get his own feet dirty, to eat our our food, to learn our language, the language he's given us to communicate with each other, that he would befriend us and the unthinkable in the midst of going to the cross, that he would unstain us by washing our feet. I can't think of anything else but to say I'm unworthy. But here's the cool thing. You have made me worthy because of your death on the cross. What a great gospel we have. That God would think enough of me, that he would love me enough to not just wash my feet, but atone for my sin by his perfect blood. Jesus, we love you. And it's in your great name we pray. Amen.